0: Hi, and welcome to FolkPod. I'm your host, Cheryl Prashker, and we're going to talk to my friends, some of the most entertaining musicians and songwriters I know. So get ready for a deep dive behind the songs and the lives they've lived through music. And if we play our cards right, they just might play a little something-something live for us, too. This week's guest is L.A.-based singer-songwriter Dan Navarro. Best known for being one half of the duo Lowen and Navarro, who together wrote the song We Belong, which Pat Benatar, of course, later covered. They also wrote for artists such as the Bangles, Jackson Brown, Dionne Warwick, and more. I was blessed to be able to work with them both via the Northeast Regional Folk Alliance, as well as play drums for them at the Falcon Ridge Folk Festival a few times, including Eric's last performance there before his passing. Welcome, Dan Navarro.
1: Hi there.
0: (laughs) Dan, this is just
1: awesome. Thank you for doing this. I miss you. It's so great to, well, see you, but it's so great to see you.
0: It's great to hear your voice for sure. I never thought about whether we should do this video-wise, but it's been kind of fun just to hear people's voices.
1: Well, the beauty of doing it audio only is that I don't have to wear pants.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I was kind of thinking back when we first met, and I believe it was at Kutcher's Resort in the Catskills. You and Eric came to the Nerfa Conference in November. Mm -hmm. And you were there to do a workshop on songwriting. And I don't remember the organization or the event having as many actual songwriting workshops, at least not with LA-based artists who had written some cool songs for some cool people. I could be wrong. But to me, I was a little starstruck. And the people that I'm working with to present this podcast, Shauna and her husband, Rich. Well, Rich and I were in a band called CC Railroad. And the other gentleman in the band, Ryder Daniels, had introduced me to your music way back and I had no idea who you guys were and just enjoyed it so much and then got to meet you and it was just such a thrill, but got to watch you guys do a songwriting workshop in person and it was just a lot of fun. How did you guys feel about presenting a workshop like that? Had you done it a lot? I'm not starting at the beginning,
1: but... We had not done it much, but we were always conscious of what the songwriting process was about for us because we came from a remarkably weird point of view on that. Eric, when we met, was not an experienced songwriter in any way whatsoever. I was. He was a fine instrumentalist, and I was not. We were both pretty good singers and discovered by accident that we could sing harmonies like we were born together. It was natural. It was instant. It was, you know, every great duo. I mean, it was Simon and Garfunkel. It was the Righteous Brothers. It was Crosby and Nash instantly from the get go. Everly Brothers, it didn't matter. And we looked at each other and went, Oh my God, you? This is it. But as we became closer friends, he taught me how to play in a band and I taught him how to write songs. And so, We each had both long experience, but also the ability to express how we got from not knowing much to knowing a good amount. And so we could communicate how you get there.
0: Yeah, I did get that from that workshop. It was um, just a whole other view for me. And of course, I was new as a songwriter as well. Anyways, thank you for being that for the rest of us at that time. It was an incredible pleasure to meet both you and Eric. There's something actually I don't know about you, and that is, did you always want to be a musician?
1: Yeah, I did. Was
0: there something else that you might have wanted to do that wasn't music?
1: Well, there were several other things that struck my fancy, and I didn't know how they would resolve themselves. I started wanting to sing actively when I was around 10. I knew that I could. I'm listening going, okay, I may be 10, but that sounds pretty good. And it mattered to me. It made me feel good. At that point in time, I thought you had to be an actor. To sing, I was looking at the people in film and in musical theater and all of that, and I did take at least a sense of of dramatics pretty seriously. I did not play the guitar, so I was not really focused on being a songwriter until my second year of college. High school, it was not something I did. I sang a little because there was no outlet. So I was involved in journalism and dramatics, and that aspect of writing is what caught my fancy. Well, at some point, I had all these related, but not particularly identical disciplines staring me in the face. And all of a sudden, it was as though singing stepped forward. And then somebody said, you need to get a guitar. And that was kind of all she wrote. From that point on, I focused on the singer-songwriter ethos. And that was also in the height of the singer-songwriter era. I mean, I'm not embarrassed or ashamed or afraid to say i'm a pretty old guy i started college in 1969 i was basically at ucla from 69 to 74 that was the height of james taylor cat stevens carol king crosby stills nash and young and jackson brown and all of that john sebastian and right oh my god i mean Tom Rush and Eric Anderson. And I say those names on purpose because <laughs> Eric is our friend. Yes. And when I got to meet him at NERFA in 2014, I just looked at him and went, <laughs> <laughs>
0: It was worth everything to see your face and watching you get to spend some time with Eric and talk to him. Amazing.
1: An hour after meeting him with my friend, Steve Postel, who who uh, Steve knew Steve Adabo I knew Steve right. Adabo's work, and of course, I was a big fan of Eric Anderson's work. Well, the four of us are hanging out. We end up in Eric's hotel room, <laughs> and he starts singing "Time Run Like a Freight Train," and Steve starts yeah. playing, and I start singing harmonies. And I grabbed video of it. I'd known the man forty-five minutes. Wow! And I'm I'm I I I I I, <laughs> I played that video over and over and over again. And I, I'm afraid. I'm sorry. I wept because I can't believe uh-huh. I'm here and that I get. To do this because of what these people meant to me. So that really took over. I'd always had an interest in art and wanted to be a cartoonist. I wanted to write for newspapers, basically all that creative stuff. And I wanted to do voice work. Oh, really? And I didn't have the chance to start doing voice work until I was in my late thirties, and all of a sudden an opportunity came up and it went sure. Somebody said, Do you think you might be able I didn't even wait for the noun, the verb. <laughs> can you think it's of- sure? I can do that. And you had never done it before? Well, I had done it a little bit. I worked in advertising from 1981 to 1985 before We Belong happened. And so I would occasionally do voiceovers, but nothing like now. And I didn't have the skill set then that I have now as a professional. Sure. But I had the interest and the acumen and the willingness to learn.
0: Living in LA doesn't hurt, obviously.
1: There are a lot of opportunities. Basically, there's always somebody saying, hey, can you come do this? So from that standpoint, yeah, there's a good amount of work and a good amount of opportunity. I've been fortunate.
0: Are you allowed to give us some examples of characters you've played or continue to play?
1: I played a character in a film in 2014 called The Book of Life. It was an animated feature, and the subject was a Mexican Book of the Dead. And I played the big villain, this gigantic, oversized behemoth of a <laughs> hulking gargoyle. And they basically hired me because I could get low. And I said stuff like,
2: I hate poor fighters. And give me the medal, and the girl pays.
1: And I get paid for that. <laughs> You know, a lot of the work I've done is unidentifiable noise voices. I've done right. nearly 400 episodes of Family Guy, American Dad, and the Cleveland show doing noises, you know, cheering, grunting, yelling, fighting. They call that walla or ADR, automated dialogue replacement. It's getting And out of women, it sounds more like... And, and it is a weird,
0: fascinating. it's a
1: fascinating way to make a living, but I'll tell you what has been beneficial to my entire life and my career and all of that from doing this work is it teaches you how to listen and how to discern things that you hear. And it has enhanced my entire life. I'm lucky to get to do this.
0: You didn't do that teenage, you know, garage band no, thing, rock and roll band thing. You never did that.
1: I never had the opportunity. I was a dork and nobody wanted me in their bands. <laughs> I sang with two other people. I was the singer, they were the guitar player and bass player for one song every Sunday at my Catholic church my senior year of high school. The song I sang was Jesse Colin Young's Get Together. Our priest uh-huh. let us do it and apparently people still remember it back in my hometown of Calexico, California. And that's what really gave me the bug saying I can do this. I didn't do it freshman year of college. Second year of college somebody said you need to go out for the men's glee club and I did and I made it and that's really what changed my entire direction. There was actually a moment at a three-day choral retreat with one of the seniors who sat me in his car, played me some Aaron Copeland, and then looked at me straight in the eye. And I was like Peter Pan on my way to the Lost Boys Island. He says, you need to change your... These are not the droids you're looking for. He's waving the hand like Obi-Wan does. You need to change your major to music. I need to change my major to music. You can do this. You can make a career of it. I can do this. I can make a career of it. And I did it. And it was weird, but it really did take over the mentality of how I was going to absorb creativity and start issuing it. I never thought I would make it. I didn't start making a living at it until I was 32 years old. I didn't start doing voice work in film until I was 36. And I mean, I got my first record deal at 37 and started touring at 38. And you're thinking it's over. I hear you. A couple weeks ago, I turned 68. No, you didn't. Yeah, I'm pushing 70 big time. But I'm lucky to still be vertical and above ground and doing the work. And my whole thing is bring it on. The gift to me is the ability to do this. If it's a gift to the world, fair enough. But it's really a gift to me.
0: When and where did you meet Eric Lowen?
1: Eric and I met in 1978, so I was almost 26. He was a year older. So we were 26 and 27. He had been in a band that was on Capitol Records and they got dropped and he lost his retainer. So he started working at this restaurant as a singing waiter where he was actually hired to replace me. I went on a three-week tour with Severin Brown and uh, I came back in this six-foot-two, beautiful, blonde, blue-eyed, hulk of a (laughs) jerk-face, surfer-looking dude from Saratoga Springs, New York. Had a better guitar and sang higher and was prettier and I hated him on sight. (laughs) and he didn't like me too much either. And we really did literally have an evening where we sang together and locked so well, we, looked at each other and said, we kind of need to figure this friendship out because I don't really like you and you don't really like... I didn't hate him. I was jealous of him. Right, And he was jealous of me too. It wasn't true hatred because he wasn't a bad guy. Although I had a buck for every woman that came up to me and said, can I ask you something No, privately over here? Is Eric dating anybody? It's the sidekick thing. (laughs) Oh no, Dan. But when we met, a lot of things changed. And one of the things that's not lost on me is we met as waiters, singing waiters in a dead-end job that leads nowhere. But he became my partner for over 30 years. We had enormous success together. We did nearly everything together, and we had been together a good 20 years when he got sick. We thought we could beat it all because we had survived everything, and then he got Lou Gehrig's disease. The beauty in that, if you want to call it that, is that he didn't pass away in a year and a half. He lived eight more years, and we've toured for five of them, as you recall.
0: It was amazing. It was a miracle.
1: He'd be at Falcon Ridge with five guys lifting up a plywood plank so he could roll his powered wheelchair onto the stage, play from the stage.
0: I remember that like it was yesterday.
1: Well, the ability to remain a part of a community and keep going is what kept him alive. What I'm grateful for is that I had the wherewithal, the presence of mind to go, there's a lesson here. You know, I didn't ever become a star. But a lot of good things happened. They're still happening and I love my job.
0: Fantastic. That's fantastic. When you guys sat down to write music together, did you write everything together? Did you write lyrics? He write music? Vice versa. How did that partnership roll along?
1: Because I was an experienced songwriter, I kind of knew how to parse the process. But because he was a pretty gifted guitar player and a wonderful singer, he tended to make up chords and melodies. And so I would fill in with lyrics, even though I could make up chords and melodies too, but we would sort of apply ourselves to whatever the job was at hand. In the case of We Belong, which was the fourth song we ever wrote together and the sixth song he'd ever written in his entire life, literally. You're kidding. The sixth song he'd written in his entire life. His first song was pretty darn good. I remember it vividly called Never Give Up.
2: Never give up. No, never, never, never give up.
1: It was pretty good. He took the lessons really well when I would say, no, you don't want to do this because of this. And he absorbed it, but he had started a progression. I wrote some stuff down. He didn't really like the first part of it, but he said, I like the second part, this We Belong to the Light thing. And he went in the other room, came out with a verse of lyrics. And I looked at his verse going, oh my God, I know the whole story now. And I wrote the second and third verses in probably half an hour.
0: That's crazy.
1: (laughs) Because it was so obvious what the story was. And I stole from that little bit that I had written that he didn't like. That became the third verse. And we were done in 90 minutes. (laughs) I'm not exaggerating.
0: Did you pitch it to Pat Benatar or did she hear it somewhere? How did that process work for people who don't know?
1: Eric pitched it to publishers all over town. He actually took it to a guy at a record company that was an old friend of mine, a guy named Jamie Cohen at EMI Records. And Jamie wanted to do something with it, but couldn't. So he said, well, I'm going to give it to the publishing guy, Tom Sturgis. And Tom listened to it and passed on it. And about three to four months later, called us out of the blue and said, I need for you to come over and do a handshake deal with me. And he pitched it to Benatar. It was in a box of a couple of dozen tapes, and she pulled it out like a lottery ping-pong ball and said, I want to do this one. And in that moment of all the stars aligning and dumb luck, our entire lives changed 180 degrees overnight.
2: 20 times I've tried to tell you, 20 times I've cried alone, always I'm surprised how well you cut my feelings to the bone, don't want just want to break the ice do i look silly to you when i
1: single and it entered the charts at 45 and it was top five at Christmas. And we went from never doing anything Mm -hmm. to becoming hit songwriters and
0: it takes one song. I've said that many, many times,
1: but it does. It takes one song to push you out of the boat. Right. And so that was the point when we now had to swim. And we did. So I quit my day job some months after the song came out. And we dove head first and started writing a lot and trying to pitch to everybody. And the whole time we wanted to have a band together. And then finally, some literally four years after that, he says, you know, let's go do that acoustic duo we were talking about for the last eight years because we're failing as artists, but we're succeeding as songwriters. Let's just go do that. And so we did.
0: That's a great story. I love that.
1: Next thing we knew, yikers. (laughs) And it was a slow build, but we just kept saying, well, I mean, can't get any worse. Let's go on this tour. I mean, we were 37 and 38. So we thought, well, we might get to make one record and that'll be the end of it. But we did arrive on, on whatever the scene was at the very beginning of AAA radio in an era where it was adult music and we got real radio. And did real shows for hundreds of people and not thousands, but hundreds. And by the time we had done that for eight years, it was winding down. And then another bit of great good fortune, my old friend, Joel Raphael said, why don't you come to this thing called Folk Alliance? And I went, (laughs) I don't know what that is, but I'll go. I know that story. Yeah, well, discovered a whole lot of people that were doing what we were doing, basically acoustic music that is loosely tied to folk. It's certainly organic and a lot of it acoustic and some wonderful songwriters and singers and found an entire community. If I hadn't done that, I would have been out of business by 2000. And instead, Eric got an extra 15 years. I got an extra 20.
0: You were president of the Folk Alliance organization. It was indeed. While I was president of the Northeast regional version of that. Well,
1: I learned a lot from it and we helped. Solidify an organization that continues to be really important to people. They were some tumultuous years when I got involved I and we straightened things out. Now we've graduated to a whole new era with Angus Finnan, who's doing wonderful things mm-hmm. with the organization. And I'm proud of the time I put in there. You know, it's what we do.
2: Oh,
0: bless you. I have an interesting question for you. Did you write with other people or just Eric?
1: Yes. We both had semi-open marriages. We did our best work with each other. Shortly after We Belong came out, I got a cut with Dionne Warwick with a writer named David Bryant, and I wrote lyrics only. Eric wrote a song with a guy named Pete Peterkin that the Four Tops cut in 1988. I wrote a song with Billy Burnett who later was in Fleetwood Mac, that Dave Edmonds cut called The Test of Love. And so we did have these outside relationships, but we always did our best work with each other. I had an ongoing partnership with a fellow from Scotland named Stephen Laroni. We had a top 65 U.S. hit and a Japanese number one together. It bought me a house and Stephen is best known for having produced Hanson.
0: No kidding. You know,
1: yeah, he produced them. Sure. And that made him a very successful man, but we had good time together and good luck together and Stephen and Eric were close and Stephen, Eric and I and Stephen's wife, Claire Grogan from the Scottish band Altered Images from the 1980s sat in a house in 1999 and wrote something like eight or nine songs for an artist named Jacob Young and we were this writing factor just making stuff up all the time.
0: Hmm. Well, what's it like for you to now write music by yourself?
1: You know, when Eric got sick, I was determined to go back to doing it alone, and I rejected all requests to collaborate. Hmm. I put a record out two years ago called Shed My Skin.
2: So I take a piece of who I am, stretch it thin. Every time I start to feel the wall. Close it
1: in. I shed my skin. Love it. Yeah, thank you. Eight of the songs are mine, and only one is a co-write with Matt Nakoa, you know, from Boston, and the rest of the other seven I wrote alone on purpose. I had to re-prove to myself that I could do it.
0: It was never thought in your mind not to continue playing obviously not it. for
1: a second no in fact what there was was an enormous amount of guilt sure. at finally sitting eric down and go you know i'm gonna keep going and it wasn't a hard decision but it was a painful decision i might have gotten started solo earlier but he was hanging mm-hmm. on and hanging in and i couldn't do that because i mean he had Lou Gehrig's disease it's a fatal disease and we knew that he would die of it we just didn't know when right so my agent at the time Mary Granada. We sat down and said, Well, Eric should be done by the end of 06. We'll get you started right at the end of 06. And Eric kept going until the Mm -hmm. end of 08. So I did two years of overlap. I would do Loan and Navarro tours, come home, dust myself off, go out and do my own tours in secondary markets. Never would talk about it to him. Never would tell him how it went. I never told. He never asked. He knew that it would hurt him to know it was going well and it would hurt him to know that it wasn't. I dealt with that by myself. And had to not so much reinvent as get used to performing alone, not having the ping pong partner to bounce things off of. And it took a while before I felt comfortable. But by the time he fully retired in the middle of 09, I hit stride and I kept going. I never sat there and said, oh God, I wish it was the old days. I would refer to us because that was the frame of reference for everybody.
0: Even now when you're doing your online concerts, and you do Lowen and Navarro songs, it seems just as natural to you. It is. Except sometimes it's funny when you feel like you can't hit the high notes like he used to, but... <laughs> oh,
1: I put the keys down. I didn't do very many Eric songs on my tours. All right. okay. But I've got to say, in the live streaming, there's been more of a demand. Obviously, because I'm streaming so much, I have to increase the repertoire and keep it interesting. Yes. So I've done certain Lowen songs more in the last six months than I had done in the ten years before that. But it's all good. They're mostly songs i co-wrote they're good songs and the ones that i didn't co-write i sang backups on these are songs from my life too and they're part of my history and i'm not going to do a paul simon and you know <laughs> Artie who what are you talking about yeah you know
0: well would you um consider singing us a song here
1: well yeah do you want to hear an old one or a new one i'll leave it up to you i think it depends on how many songs you're gonna let me have live because i've got this new one i love about why we do this oh. but i've also got older ones i mean
0: well let's do both and yeah see how that goes okay All I will say is it's going to be very hard not to get the drum out.
1: (laughs) Who says you have to not get the drum out?
0: Yeah, true, true.
1: This is a newer song that's going to be on my next record, and it's actually going to be the title track. I co-wrote this with a gentleman named Hank Linderman, who is an engineer who has worked with Firefall and Timothy B. Schmidt of the Eagles and America and tons and tons of people. He was the guy that turned me on to the Barefoot Movement, who's my favorite bluegrass band right now. And we wrote this song that basically answers the question, why? Why do you do this? So, Cheryl, this is from me to you, because we can relate to this.
2: If I sit too long The television starts telling me it's my friend When the air goes still It starts feeling like the end And then the world calls out A wind whispering Baby, I got something new It's a siren song That beckons me to move You know I can't slow down My wheels are turning Don't matter if I'm wasting time I'm gonna set my sights On the next horizon line Well I've been chasing dreams Like they were oxygen Feeding these fires at night They're gonna light my way Between the thunder and the taillights, the red taillights Yeah, I can't slow down, my wheels are turning Don't matter if I'm wasting time I'm gonna set my sights on the next horizon line Yeah, the past is gone, but I'm still learning Ain't hanging on a dollar sign i'm gonna set my sights on the next horizon Unforsaken, unforgiven Burning brighter, burning down A house in one more town Well, there's a cool blue sky out on this mountain's uphill climb and the cold black clouds that are tracking me will fall behind so far behind yeah I can't slow down my wheels are spinning don't matter if I'm wasting time I'm gonna set my sights on the next horizon line yeah the past is gone but I'm still living ain't hanging I'm gonna set my sights on the next horizon line.
0: Dan Navarro.
1: And that's why.
0: That is my favorite Dan Navarro song ever. And I don't mind saying there's a little mist in my eyes. That was beautiful.
1: Let me tell you, it really resonates.
0: May I ask? Yes. I'm going to assume not too many people have heard that. I
1: play it on the streams and that's it because I haven't been out. It's become a favorite in the streams.
0: Again, your voice is so comforting at this time.
1: Thank you. I can't explain it. I'm lucky to get to do this and I'm part of an amazing community. We have some of the finest friends and are lucky to know them. And there's all the cross paths in the world. I did a period of time on the streams. I decided to go to the fans and say, send me your 15 song set list and I will do your entire set list. I know it was amazing that you did that. 77 shows. 15 weeks. Well, one of them was a song, a wonderful song by an Irish woman. I could not find her version on Spotify. I had to find it on YouTube because the version on Spotify was by this band called Runa. (laughs) (laughs) song called Who Will Sing Me Lullabies.
0: Oh, that's such a beautiful song. An
1: amazing Kate Rusby song.
0: You know the story behind it? I don't. She wrote it for an artist that she dearly loved who had passed away, and it was a lullaby to him, and we do it, and when we do it, Shannon sings it as a lullaby for her son Liam, so it's a very special song for us.
1: Well, I have a a fan friend named Michael Mix who had turned me on to Kate Rusby almost 20 years ago.
0: Isn't her voice spectacular?
1: Her voice is magnificent. And I told them, look, you don't have to stick to my songs or our songs. You can throw in a couple of covers. Mm -hmm. And even if I don't know them, I'll learn them. I will say by the end of the 15 weeks, people were requesting eight and nine of them. And I was spending six (laughs) hours a day learning songs. So I finally had to go, yeah, no, that's not what I meant, you guys. But he put that in there. And of course, I knew how much he loved Kate Rusby. I was amazed that I could not find that version on Spotify.
0: I'm actually surprised as well.
1: But again, I find this Runa version. I'm going, that's my (laughs) friend. Oh, my God. She's so
0: cool. We are so blessed. We are so lucky. And I got excited about all the people that I could talk to that are my friends who have these amazing stories to tell, things that I know, things that I don't know about them, and things that I know people will find fascinating.
1: I think so. But I think part of it is the community you belong to. I mean, there are certain artists you could get on here who would probably say stuff like, well, you know, I went to college and I bought this guitar and I wrote a song. And then I was opening at Madison Square Gardens. And I have to tell you, the limo was just not the right kind of. No, we have friends who have carved this out on the ground in real time, who have made dozens of dollars, (laughs) but who have incredible stories in particular, have reached people and have moved people.
0: That has been the theme to every conversation I've had And it's been a question I've asked everybody It's funny that I did not ask you that question Because I didn't want to repeat myself But I find it so fascinating to hear the answers When I ask the artist Was there a song that you were surprised moved somebody? Well,
1: there are songs that I'm surprised get requested I wrote a song for my mother's passing in 1994 Called Crossing Over And it is gut-wrenching
2: As you go pull- What will be waiting for you on the other side? Is it dark and empty? Is it warm and light? And can you see us from there? Wish I was anywhere but watching you
1: And by the way, the key lyric was a story I had told Eric, but Eric wrote the key lyric, which is something we often did, is that we were able to tell each other's story slightly better because it was a tiny bit of perspective that the person inside the story had lost. The verse was, you were so prepared, please try not to cry, Lord, I am not scared. I've made my peace. Let me memorize your eyes till the next time.
0: Wow. And
1: it's like, and I have a hard time getting through that sometimes. I couldn't sing the song for two full years after Eric died, mm. but people request it. And I've seen people come unglued in the audience and I'm going, that's the same guy that requested it. And I'll go up to them afterwards and they say, we buried my mom today. Thank you for playing that. Oh. And these are the things that you don't anticipate is people that want the emotional release and that that's good for them having grown up in the commercial record business in Los Angeles, you know, keep it light, keep them dancing, keep them moving. I don't think I've ever written a happy song (laughs) that didn't have a second verse about how ugly things were. Even You Are My Sunshine. The other day, (laughs) dear, when I was sleeping, the whole second verse is how bad everything is. Well, yeah, because I'm really happy doesn't have a second verse with happiness. I'm really happy part two.
0: I've had a a couple of good cries over your songs. I'm not going to lie, but in a good way, in a good way.
1: Change is huge. And I will say the one thing that has happened is I've gotten better at dealing with it. There frankly was no greater loss and I've experienced some serious loss. I don't mean to put too fine a point on it, but the Eric thing was tough because it was long. And Mm -hmm. I watched it and I accompanied him through it. I did that by choice. He didn't ask me to stay. I didn't ask if I could leave. We just looked at each other and I knew what I was going to do for the next bunch of years was see him to the door. There was no other way to do it. To have not done that would have been, that would have been ugly and painful and horrible. Well, there was also his kids. Right. It was there for his kids, for his wife and his Mm ex-wife, all of whom are still in my life. It was a really, really tough one. It was the long goodbye. But that said, I'm grateful that I did it. I'm grateful I did it the way that I did it, grateful that he lived. I mean, he did a lot to make it a profoundly enriching, I won't say rewarding, but an enriching experience yeah, yeah. by being very open about it, by cracking jokes at his own expense. Right. And you know, it was him. He didn't shy away from talking about the ugly side of what he was dealing with. I once saw him butter his hand because he couldn't move quick enough oh. to butter a piece of bread properly and he missed and he didn't have fine motor control. And you just go over there and you go, uh, you know, you're going to toast that thing. (laughs) And he'd look at me and he goes, I'm going to wipe it on your face. I go, okay, we're good. (laughs) We went through everything together, Cheryl.
0: How lucky are you to have had that relationship?
1: It's the most profound relationship of my life. And with no offense intended, even my ex-wife knows that. And my ex-wife is one of my best friends. We were married for seven years. We've been apart 18. We have a 24-year-old son. But she knows that the most important relationship of my life, most profound relationship of my life, was with Eric Long.
0: And you shared that with so many people. And I think why you had the long careers that you had together is because you let people in. Thank you. Yeah. Obviously in this community, it's a different thing. You know, when you go to festivals and whatnot, the fans get to hang out with you, get to say, hi, we get to talk to you. And you guys were always good at that.
1: You know, the thing that was funny is that we never discussed it. Really? We both sort of took to that and we'd look at each other and go, clearly you feel this way too, because we grew up in a record business, a music business where you hid backstage and you had security, laminated passes, and didn't let anybody near you. And we instinctively would go out after the shows and hang out in the bar and talk to everybody until it was over. Go back to the hotel, like, why? And we're just alone. We hang out with you guys. We have friends. It's
0: just awesome. I got a chance to chat with Reggie Harris and we were talking about being on the stage even at Folk Alliance. And getting a chance to play with people that you just enjoy their company and you enjoy their musicianship. And for me, getting a chance to do that with you at places like the Folk Alliance Conference or the Falcon Ridge Folk Festival stage.
1: With the of Ram's Head in Annapolis, Maryland, when it was just you and me, we didn't have a bass player.
0: Oh, that was the best.
1: Just percussion and guitar and voice. You're right. It was really cool.
0: That was very cool. I hope we get to do that again sometime.
1: We shall, but we'll have to be wearing space suits.
0: Yeah. <laughs> business-wise, because obviously you had to deal with the business end. Was there ever a bad business decision? I mean...
1: There were a few. You know, we had no publishing on We Belong, and we had pretty much been led to believe that the cut wouldn't happen if we didn't give them all the publishing. And we have since found out that that wouldn't have been the case.
0: I didn't know that you found that out. I knew the other part of the story, but are you kidding me?
1: (laughs) Basically, the cut was already in hand when that phone call was made. I think what happened is that she picked the song and the guy went, Oh no, I don't have a deal on this song. And so Mm. he made the arch deal. Now we made a lot of money. I don't want to imply that we were robbed. You know, co publishing would have been better. Sure. And I got my publishing back on that in November.
0: Oh, I didn't know that either.
1: Yeah, they tried to buy it back from us. And, you know, Eric's gone, but his estate, we both agreed, no, we haven't had it for 35 years. We want it. We're keeping it. Good.
0: I'm very glad to hear that. Thanks
1: for the offer. It's a big number, but no, no thanks. There was, you know, a manager that I wanted to work with. And. Eric was resistant and we walked away from that. And I think that was a big mistake. I think things could have gotten a lot smoother. Oh, that happens. You know, most of it was just bad luck rather than bad decisions. A couple of record companies went belly up on us. Hmm. I mean, it's all these years later and there are still people saying, I was at that show back in 1990. Can't have been that bad a decision. Amen. You know?
0: Okay, I will lighten it up then. (laughs) Tell us something funny, kooky about yourself that people might not know.
1: I have a steel trap mind, I have incredible memory, and I have a Virgo sense of detail. No kidding. And I am the biggest slob (laughs) you ever met in your entire life. My home looks like it's owned by an ADD pawnbroker into explosives. People walk in going... Oh, my word. And people kind of don't know that about me. When I'm dating somebody, I wait a long time before they come over. I remember somebody (laughs) I dated in 2014 who just flat out said, oh, for God's sake, don't hide your mess. I'm going to find out eventually. (laughs) Oh, no kidding. And she was fine with it. I have a real serious follow-through problem sometimes because I'm thinking of too much stuff all at once.
0: I'm the same way and your brain works quite quickly and sometimes it's hard to keep up.
1: And I have addictions. Two years ago, I found some money in a bank account I didn't know I had. It had been receiving my residuals from films and I'd forgotten about it. So what (laughs) am I going to do with it? I'll maybe buy some stock. (laughs) You can't sit on your bed and play with stock. So I went guitar crazy. I spent the whole wad on three rather high end, two vintage guitars and one relatively new one that are rather nice and will not depreciate in value. Yes, the bank account is empty, but I'm still sitting there going on reverb. Okay, there's this one. I'll tell you what it is. It's a 1951 Gibson CF-100E. has a built-in pickup, their first picked up acoustic, their first cutaway acoustic. And it's very, very rare, and it's quite valuable. And I'm going, well, I'll never get the value out of it until I sell it. So I'm going to need to buy two of them so I can have <laughs> one to play and one to sell. This is how weird I am.
0: No, oh, no, no! But there's going to be a lot of people out there, probably mostly men, who are shaking their heads, saying they would do the exact same thing you did.
1: Well, yeah, exactly. I mean, yeah. there's there are a series <laughs> of memes out there with Ray Liotta from Goodfellas making that sort of intense laugh, like that derisive. <laughs> laugh, where it says, yeah, I tell my wife, I got a new guitar. She goes, so you mean you're going to sell the old one? (laughs) I mean, you know
0: what? It's just part of the way that I can imagine you've been dealing with the last six months. I mean, I'm sure you're very happy that you were able to keep these shows going, but how you doing?
1: I bought three microphones. I bought two sets of studio lights. I bought a mixer. (laughs) I bought a new computer. And there's a part of me right now that thinks that I may buy a Mercedes Sprinter van and convert it into a camper, something small that I can park on a city street without drawing attention to itself. Oh, wow. And maybe never fly and just go. Okay. Let's say I'm playing Chicago. Take three days to get there. And do a live stream from... Oh,
0: Dan, that's so cool. And maybe some pickup gigs in people's
1: backyards. Bingo. In people's backyards yep. or just a public park. Just say, hey, I'm going to show up at a public park until they shut me down. <laughs> I've got a good amount of portable PA gear. I have a couple of things that are battery operated. I have yet another one that is, has the built-in mixers built into the speakers. So I can do all of this and I don't necessarily need power. So the idea is just go.
0: When they open the borders, I hope you'll come to Ontario Oh, it'd be
1: so much fun. Canada sounds like a really good idea. And I think the real question would be Ontario or B.C. Or B.C., of course, sure. Because of the California connection. and uh, Yep. Well, good gosh. With a camper van, I'll just drive across and do shows the whole way. Through the Canadian Rockies. I can see you enjoying that. This is Dan Navarro in <laughs> Banff. Oh.
0: Dan, would you play us another song?
1: I will indeed. Thank you so much for asking. Oh, this is great. I'm in a 12-string frame of mind, which is funny because I never, I never was much a 12-string guy. I hope it's still in tune. You sound amazing. Well, thank you. But I am going to turn the, the reverb on. Mm-hmm. I love the voice of God. <laughs> anyway, this is a song that Eric wrote with a gentleman named Rob Lamoth, who was part of a band called The River Dogs. His four-year-old son came up with the title, so Eric gave him full credit.
0: You're kidding.
1: So it's written by Eric Lowen, Rob Lamoth, and Josh Lamoth. I think Josh is probably 30 now. Oh,
0: it's so beautiful.
1: This was the title track of our 1993 album, This Is Broken Moon.
2: Oh, broken moon, spirit's waiting, flesh is weak, three simple words. You can cry if you have to, cry yourself to sleep, when it gets to You can cry, baby, you can cry Oh, when the soul gets weary and the colors fade to blue And it's strange somehow you can see more clearly by the light of a broken moon Oh, the light of a broken moon Oh, wicked dreams Fear is winning And it's haunting me Three simple words But when love is all you look for And beauty all you see They can let you down And make you cry Baby make you cry. Oh, when the soul gets weary and the colors fade to blue, and it's strange somehow. You can see more clearly by the light of a broken moon. Oh, when the soul gets weary and the colors fade to blue. And it's strange somehow, you can see more clearly by the light of a broken moon, on the light of a broken moon. perfect world Love will find me And it'll bring me peace Three simple words Oh, when the soul gets weary And the colors fade to blue Ain't it strange somehow You can see more clearly By the light of a broken moon the soul gets weary and the colors fade to blue and it's strange somehow you can see more clearly by the light of a broken moon on oh, the light of a broken moon
0: Gorgeous. You talked briefly about the possibility of a new album. Do you have a time frame or an idea?
1: I like recording with musicians in studios. It's a different world. Yeah. And that's not necessarily safe. I do know some people that are starting to do distanced recording. Mm Mm-hmm. I have a producer in mind who is the guy who produced the first four Lone and Navarro records and the final one, and I haven't worked with him in 12 years.
0: But that final album is just spectacular.
1: Well, thank you. Jim Scott, who produced Walking on a Wire, Broken Moon, the re-release of Walking on a Wire, Pendulum, mixed Scratch at the Door, and then recorded Learning to Fall, is a multi-Grammy winner. He's worked with Petty and Dixie Chicks, and he's worked with Wilco and Crowded House and everybody. Neil Casale, and was... Rick Rubin's main engineer for a while. He produced a record for Whiskey Town, which was Ryan Adams's band before he was solo, that he asked me to play brass on because I could play trumpet a little bit.
0: <laughs> That's great.
1: He said, do you think you can get the horns together? And I'm going, yeah. And then you're like, how am I going to do that? <laughs> well, I'm not that good. I actually, somebody else called later, you know, hey, I'd like you to play trumpet on this record. I go, dude, I'm not that good. He goes, if I wanted a real trumpet player, I would have called somebody else. He said, I want very elementary, almost dumb. <laughs> and I went, well, great. I'm your man. Let's go. I've got enough songs, but I'm also mm-hmm. still writing. I've written very little in shutdown, but I'm starting to break that spell. And Good. I had a song half written with Wendy Waldman. I have a song half written with a friend of mine named Robert Dale Klein. The most recent song I'm playing out, well, one of them is a song called Everybody's Drinking But Me <laughs> that I wrote with Deborah Holland from The Refugees. I was on my way on a cruise from Vancouver to Seward, Alaska, a year ago, and I stayed at her house one night, and we pounded this little baby out, and it's like, wow, wow. And you never recorded it? No, I mean, it's. I mean, I, believe me, I could do it. It's my favorite song of, of my most recent material.
0: It's definitely time for a new Dan Navarro album.
1: It is, and I like what I have to say right now. And Horizon Line would be the title of the new record because it's about why do I keep going and what am I discovering that's new, and. What I'm learning for myself and what I want to convey to my contemporaries, and that means 40 year olds, not just 65 year olds, is there's always time and room for something new. Don't fall into the habit of not wanting to, to blow out the old cobwebs because that will make you old. What keeps you young is not looking at some new style and putting it on like a bad piece of costume, you know, like a, like a 70 year old in a pair of tight leather pants. Don't do that, but discover What resonates for you out of the sense of newness? And for me, it's about continuously finding new horizons, continuously trying new things, meeting new people, experimentation, and those elements do, in fact, resonate for me. Life without it does not sound like a heck of a lot of fun.
0: I love talking with you, listening to your thoughts and your perspectives, and I just appreciate you sharing with me and with everybody who's going to be listening well, thank
1: you thank you for having me
0: yeah this has just been great where can people find you on the uh, worldwide web on the
1: worldwide interweb at facebook at dan navarro music at twitch at dan navarro music where i'm on every saturday you young whippersnapper! snapper no, you. i gotta tell you twitch is a load of fun really the thing about it is it's pretty robust for musicians there are a lot of people going up there it's about engagement and twitch really rocks The Dan Navarro YouTube channel. My website is dannevaro.com. I will warn you, it hasn't been updated since March. So I've got a lot of work to do on that. Well, you've been busy. Everything is on Spotify, iTunes, Apple Music, Amazon Music, and Deezer. It's all out there. And you can stream anything for free on my site. Amazing. People are hungry for contact and engagement now. Here's my COVID statement. Do more. Reach farther. Because everybody's going, I can't leave my house, and they will follow you. They will tune in. And so that's why it's 152 songs from the Corona Zone streams of a couple of hours apiece. And uh, I'm putting it out there more and more. I think you did 100 in a row. Yeah, I did six nights a week for five months. And then I kind of downplayed it starting in mid-August to three nights a week.
0: But I got to tell you, as a listener who is stuck in my home, who's a fan and a friend, it was beautiful. It was comfort. It was something to look forward to every day.
1: It's so much fun.
0: Well, you are a sweetheart, just all around, most awesome guy.
1: Well, thank you. Right back at you.
0: You took me to my first LA Dodgers game
1: last year. Yes, indeed. And I have your Chase Utley bobblehead from a couple of weeks later.
0: Hold on to that, please.
1: Send me your address. I'll send it to Canada.
0: (laughs) Dan Navarro, you are the bestest. I loved this chat. Thank you for doing this.
1: Thank you very much. You
0: bet. Yeah. Oh, this has been fantastic. You've been listening to Dan Navarro on Folk Pod, everybody, and I'll see you next time.
1: Love you, Cheryl. I paid about $3,000 for a digital talent enhancer. I don't really sound I, like this. Let me turn it off. Hang no. on. I'm, gonna, I'm serious. I'm going to turn it off. No, you sound good. This is what I really sound like. <laughs> This is real. See, it, it changes everything. It's just something I bought. It costs a whole lot of money. And I'm serious. Let me, let me put it back. Let me put it back on. And it's just, it's, it's something that we should really investigate marketing widely. Because it's not I think a bad go, idea. No, it's a really good thing. I'm going to turn it off and it sounds like this. And then I turn it back on and it sounds like this. And it's just really, really strange, especially in the folk world. It's so much, so handy. Such a cool thing that I get to do this sort of thing, you know? Anyway, i got to turn it back on. Thank you. Sorry about that.
0: FolkPod is a production of Long Story Short with me, Cheryl Prashker, your host and producer, and Shauna Boniface, our creator, producer, editor, head cook, and bottle washer. Catch us on Twitter and Instagram at The FolkPod. Thanks for listening and hope to see you next time.